Okay, well, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's been great to get to know a few of you a little bit. Let me just, hold on, move that cable around there. That's better. Um, uh, let's pray again, and then we'll begin once more. Merciful Father, we are grateful once again for one another, for this time, for this place, for our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we're united and in whom we're called to grow in maturity. And as we think about that path set before us, we ask that you'd help us to consider the ways in which the different influences in the world around us bear upon our hearts so that we may approach the task of striving for maturity with greater understanding and purposefulness and maturity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just a quick summary, very bare bones outline summary so far. Um, The goal of the Christian life is the pursuit of maturity in Christ, which is his and therefore ours as a gift. That maturity is attained by having our hearts fixed upon him because the heart is the seat not merely of the emotions but of every aspect of um, what we might call human interiority, all the non-bodily things about us, desires, loves, thoughts, decisions, volitional actions of the will, what we want to do, and therefore it drives our actions. So if we can only get our hearts shepherded, our hearts ruled well, then we'll be far better placed to grow more Christ-like. And it seems to me, if not certain, that most of the time we only bring to bear on our hearts one aspect of what has the potential to shape it, namely teaching, intellectual input. And it's not that that isn't the um, way to shape the human heart. It's just that it's not the only way. Because if the heart is the organ of relationship, then relationships also will dramatically shape how we function as human beings. And of course, we're familiar with that. Once you put it in that way, it's obvious. People shape us. But also, more subtly, and I do want to spend a bit of time towards the end of this session talking about this, what we do with our bodies has the capacity to shape our hearts. Because we're not just a brain on a stick or a brain in a box. We're a brain, a mind, connected with a body, a body and soul. So if we think those three influences, um, teaching, teaching, uh, bodily habits and actions and personal relationships. If we can focus on exploiting all those connections to our hearts, we have a great deal of potential to grow in Christ-likeness. I think it's exciting to contemplate that. Now what I want to do next is first a brief excursus into the work of a man who I believe to be one of, if not the greatest living reformed theologian, whose entire theological project I was thrilled to discover 
mirrors this triadic approach to the human heart. We'll take five, ten minutes on that. Then I want to um, outline a biblical case for this triadic structure, um, which goes beyond what we've talked about previously, and it will also then help us to work out how we exploit what we've learned. So if, this, if these are the three keys that allow us to access a human heart, the biblical picture I want to set before you, I hope will allow us to see, okay, now I'm, getting, I'm beginning to figure out what I can actually do practically. Put the money on the table, pastor. Tell me what, tell me what to do um, to actually grow in Christ-likeness, and then we're going to explore some of those things tomorrow. So first, the greatest, perhaps, certainly one of the greatest living Reformed theologians, in my mind, um, and... Yeah, you're asking my opinion. You asked me to speak. <laughs> it's John Frame. Hands up if you've heard of John Frame. Ah, yes. How many of you recognized his um, three perspectives in that triadic? You spot, yeah, well spotted. If you know John Frame's work, you will have already spotted that. In the background of his entire theological project is the claim that everything in the universe and indeed the God who exists beyond the universe can and ought rightly to be uh, understood from three different perspectives. Now he labels these differently in different places. Sometimes he talks about control, authority, presence. I prefer the labels normative, situational, existential. Now if you're taking notes you want to write those down and then you want to go and buy everything that John Frame's ever written beginning with his um, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then get a systematic theology. Then get the doctrine of the Christian life. Then get the doctrine of God. Then get the doctrine of the knowledge of God. Then buy everything else. In fact, you might as well just buy it all in a big job lot and try and get a discount. Um, he writes like liquid chocolate. It is just spectacular, but it is also tremendously insightful. And what he highlights is with everything and every action you can get at what it is more completely if you understand it from three different angles. Consider, and this is the best way into it, I think, in the case of human uh, Christian ethics, three perspectives on an action, a moral action. Normative, situational, existential. The normative perspective will consider, well, what are the rules here? What are the words or the commands that I am keeping or breaking here? So if I'm telling a lie, um, what I'm doing is I'm disobeying the ninth commandment and a bunch of other biblical commandments. It's a, the normative perspective on lying is that you are breaking a norm. The situational perspective has to do with the circumstances, the environment, the situation that you find yourself in, what's happened before, and what you think might happen afterwards, the consequences of the action. So um, if you're lying, from the situational perspective, what you're doing is you're rendering an inaccurate account of the situation you're in, or you're causing bad consequences to follow. You see what I'm saying? It, it, it's true that you're breaking a rule, but you're also, if you lie to somebody about, yeah, yeah, I've... Then 
that is situationally catastrophic because what you're actually doing is you're, when you view that action from a situational perspective, it becomes clear that it is manslaughter or some kind of uh, negligent homicide or something. If you view it from the normative perspective, all you're doing is, well, I just didn't fix the brakes on the car. What's the big deal? Well, the situational perspective reveals more about the action. Normative, situational, existential, has to do with relationships, the personal element, my motives, my desires, my goals, and what's happening between me and other people as I do this action. So telling a lie, what am I doing? I'm distorting terribly my relationship with you. You know, I, I owe Derek, Pastor Hale, the truth. Would you be willing to come out here and, and speak for us? It would be an honour to do that. And, and as I said, I would, and I'm here. And if, I, if I'd just got it this morning, I thought, yeah, it's just a little bit early, frankly. And a quite a long way to Kansas. And apparently Dorothy doesn't live here anymore, so it's like, well, why would I want to go? Um, I could have the day off and nobody would know, apart from Pastor Hale. And he'd, he'd great, he'd think of something. He'd be able to do all this stuff and... Well, no, 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 because I told a lie. And what I've done, I, it's a breach of trust. It's a broken relationship. So can you see? And, and what happens in Christian ethics is that if you view actions from these three perspectives, you can sometimes unlock complex problems. You can certainly analyze the action more deeply and figure out whether it's right or wrong. Actually, you can solve some real ethical puzzles. You know an ethical puzzle? Um, is it always wrong to lie? <laughs> Pastor Hale, is it always wrong to lie? You've read, you've read John Frame on Joshua 2. And, right, so how, how you parse this is, is um, not so important as the simple fact that when in Joshua chapter 2, um, uh, the Jericho police force arrived at Rahab's door and said, uh, bring out the men who came to your house, she said, I don't know where they went. They didn't come here. We want to try, try that way. And all the while, she knows that they're up on the roof where she's hidden them. She, what she said to the officers was not an accurate account of the um, circumstances that she found herself in. Now, now, some theologians, John Murray, for example, say it's not technically a lie because something, whatever. I actually think that's a mistake. I think the best thing to say is that the normative commandment, the ninth commandment, contains built into it a, an implicit set of qualifications or nuances which are made evident by how scripture describes events when the normative command seems to be broken. So why is it legitimate? Well, the legitimacy appears very clear if you consider the action from, let's say, the situational perspective. Because what's she trying to do? Oh, she's trying to preserve the life of the spies. The consequence of disclosing their location would be similar to the consequence of disclosing that, yes, when the Nazis come banging on your door in 1941 in southern Poland, yes, we have Jews here. It will be a similar... So Rahab analysed John Frame's situational perspective and considered the consequences of disclosing the... Um, whereabouts of these spies and she said no no this, this, the right thing to do here would not be to tell the truth 
And so she's, what that does is it reveals that, it's not that you're breaking the normative element actually, what you're doing is you're revealing a hidden nuance in the ninth commandment. What the ninth commandment actually says is, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, yada, 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 except in certain circumstances, and the except in certain circumstances is fleshed out in the rest of scripture, which is why we need the whole of scripture, not just Mark, Romans, and half of Philippians, and the Ten Commandments. We need the whole Bible to show us this ethical nuance which um, arises sometimes situationally. Or consider the existential perspective. What's her motive? Her motive is to save life. Her motive is to, well, side with Yahweh. She wants to abandon her gods and she wants to seek refuge in the God of Israel. So you can analyze this action of this person from these three different perspectives and you, you discover that the situational and existential perspectives on this person's action reveal aspects of the action that if you just looked from the normative perspective you wouldn't have seen. Are you with me? Now this is just magnificent and and Frame has made it his life's project among a gazillion other things to, to build and no, no, it's not it's right, not to build, but to articulate creatively and in a thoroughly orthodox way reformed historic biblical doctrine in fresh ways that draw on these kinds of distinctions. And it's tremendously illuminating to read. Um, if you're a professional, if you're a philosopher of ethics, you will notice that his three perspectives actually correspond to the three major schools of ethics. So normative Um, Kantian deontological ethics act according to that rule which thou wouldst will become a universal law is that Kant Um, the situational perspective is situation ethics and um, the existential perspective is virtue ethics and what happens in all secular ethical systems is that one of those perspectives is taken in isolation away from the other two then it's divorced from the bible and then it's made to stand alone which is why consequentialism and deontological ethics and virtue ethics and all their subspecies like um, uh, utilitarianism and so on. Well, they don't work because they don't have the Bible and they don't have those other perspectives. So, so John Frame's big fat book, Doctrine of the Christian Life, magnificent book, because what it does is helps you to see with subtlety and nuance the, the depth of human action and whether it's right or wrong. And so I'm really excited because this semester I get to teach Christian ethics to a bunch of really enthusiastic 11th and 12th graders. Are you watching, by the way, you enthusiastic 11th and 12th graders? You've got this coming. Um, uh, And um, it's just really exciting to see their eyes open as they start to see the subtlety of how Scripture speaks about different people and their actions. Now, normative, situational, Existential. Can you see where we're going? Normative. What are the words, the norms, the rules that apply in this situation? You want to shape a person? You teach them. Situational. What are the actions and the circumstances in which you place a person? And how does that shape them? What's the first thing he does when he gets up in the morning? Oh, it's obvious the first thing he does. Groans, rolls over, gropes blindly for his mobile phone, unplugs it from the charger, scans his thumbprint. He doesn't even have to turn it on anymore. Because it's just thumbprint scan, blip, 
and he clicks whatever, Facebook, Instagram, email. That bodily ritual is shaping you all. And nobody's teaching you anything. But it's shaping you because it is part of the environment that you have allowed to be created for you. It's that thing in which you live and move and have your being. It is the situational element that bears upon you, yeah? So, normative, and you guys, <laughs> married couple over there, like smiling embarrassedly at each other. Do you both do this? I don't need to know the answer to that. And then existential, relationships. Um, how, I can still remember that my, um, uh, we used to, when we lived in London, uh, we had a lovely family who lived next door to us, Polish family. And the man had moved to England like many Polish men do with their families because he wanted to work extremely hard to make a better life for himself. So he worked during the day. Um, I think he was, um, he was a carpenter, that's right. He was a carpenter during the day. Then he ran his own building and odd jobs business in the evening. So he's basically working two jobs. And his son struggled with English a little bit. And um, obviously, because he moved from Poland. And so he's bottom of the class at maths as a you know, 13, 14 year old. And so one summer, he just, off his own bat, he just got himself a math course off the internet and just studied the whole summer. And by the end of the next year, he was top of the class in maths. This kid's amazing. And, he's, and my son, Ben, was about his age and made friends with him. And one day, I was, um, I was doing some yard work, kind of trying to clear up the garden. And, and we had these um, paving stones that had been laid by a semi-trained baboon, I think, and, and all the weeds growing up between them. And so I'd get down on my hands and knees every spring or get a, a, a shovel and try and carve out the grass that grew up. From, you know, have you ever had that job? Miserable. We should have got one of those high-speed water jet sprayer things. And Anyway, but we didn't. I got, and on one occasion, Tom from next door came over to help. And I've got to say, my son Ben and I, we've been kind of going at this and without a huge amount of enthusiasm. Tom comes around. <laughs> and he's like... <laughs> and then, you know, half the patio's done in five minutes. Was, and you can see my son was like, whoa. Existential. I hadn't told him anything. But his friend, Tom, had just modelled a work ethic from, you know... 1656 England or something you know like when you really had to work for a living and it was so powerful and uh, you've been struck by that maybe uh, the other example I always think of my son uh, poor kid I hope he's not watching he'll be so annoyed anyway he'll calm down by the time I get home um, you know how kids want to be like their parents um, so when when I was a seminary student, Ben was born about a month after we began at seminary. So I had four years there. So by the time I was doing, I was doing a dissertation in my final year. So he's about three, three and a half. And I wrote a dissertation on Jonathan Edwards. I don't know whether you could tell from earlier. but I like Jonathan Edwards. And maybe that's why I moved here. I don't know. Um, anyway, so uh, Nicole, my wife, would say to Ben in the morning, so, so, Daddy, where's Daddy going? He said, Daddy's going to do his Jonathan Edwards what she used to say and so Ben developed this game right what he'd do is he'd go and sit on the chair in our lounge his little chubby legs sort of like flapping around on the end with some massive book on his knee that he couldn't read and Nicole would be like what are you doing Ben he said I'm doing Jonathan Edwards 
because, you know, it's what his dad did. Uh, kids mimic. Kids imitate. Now remember that, because we're going to come back to that. So anyway, John frames perspectives. It, it, it's not just that a human action can be analyzed into normative, situational, existential. Everything in human life, everything in the universe, and God himself, don't ask me, read John Frame, can be viewed in this way. And so people can be. The things that shape the human heart are normative influences, teaching. Situational influences, habits, bodily actions, circumstances we routinely place ourselves in, and existential influences. And um, what we're going to do is to see that at work in the most significant, paradigmatic, biblical example of growth to maturity that I can think of. What is um, the biblical answer to the question I asked about 15 minutes into the first session. What is the systematic, biblically grounded, theologically informed framework for approaching the task of growth to maturity? The Bible gives it a very simple name. Childhood. It's obvious. If immaturity is what you want to grow out of. Maturity is what you want to go, go, grow towards. The Bible gives instructions for parents about how to guide their children through childhood to maturity. The way that parents are supposed to raise their children, if we did it perfectly, mums and dads, pardon me, if we did it perfectly in a flawless, sinless world, and if our children were not uh, sons and daughters of a sinful Adam as they and we are, then what would happen? The normal process of childhood would do for our children what it did for Jesus. It would bring him to maturity. So just think for a second about what parents are supposed to do for their children. And you start to see all of those three perspectives uh, fleshed out in the life of your hypothetical perfect family. In fact, really you see them in the reverse order from what I've mentioned to you before, and that's actually probably significant because it probably creates a misunderstanding for us. First, you see the existential element. You see relationship. What is the most basic thing that a mum first does? I mean, there's lots of, no, that's a really dumb question. There's loads of things that mum does, feed, and care, and hold, but the, the holding, the, even the carrying of a child in the womb establishes relationship, does it not? And the first calling, in effect, on parents with their children is to love and talk to their children and to be with them. I remember in the hospital when my son Ben was first born and we put him down in one of those little plastic boxes that look completely soulless and you know because he you know I'd been holding him it was middle of the night been awake 26 hours totally exhausting this process of childbirth and my wife, my wife found it slightly exhausting as well 
Um, anyway, so we put Ben down. And I remember saying to Nicole afterwards, I, I was really worried because I was worried that when I went back, I wouldn't know which one was ours. Shades of Solomon, you know? Well, not quite, but um, I, I wouldn't know because I hadn't got that relationship. But I, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because, you, like, you know. Like, you know which one's yours. And, and you love and you hold and you care for uh, the child. So much of what you do, especially in the early days, is all about relationship. You welcome a child into a community. You know, what do you do? You've had kids baptized at the church here, right? And they, they come along and the kids are like two weeks old because the first Sunday mum was still recovering and the kid comes along and what does everybody want to do? They're like, oh, it's a baby, great. No, they want to come and they poke the fingers in the ears and oh, isn't this sweet? And the little tiny fingers. And all the teenage boys are like, well, it's a baby. <laughs> um, but every, there's a relationship. They're welcomed into the community. It's what baptism is. You bring the child into the community. Existential. And it's foundational. Um, as they grow older, that relationship is the context within which you set before the child a vision of the life that ought to be lived. So it's just fascinating here. I didn't ask him to do this, but look, Pastor Hale with his arm around his son, sitting. He's even got the same color clothes. I mean, look at this. It's like blue, blue, beige, beige. White socks, white socks, black shoes, black... It's like little mini me, isn't it? And then, forgive me, you're Cecilia next to mum. Now, you know, you're learning about how to be, and you're, what, five years old? In a lecture which has already gone on, there's like 45 minutes, first one, this one's gone on for 25 minutes. You're learning how to sit, and your mum is not telling you, right, here's how you do it. Try and ignore the accent. You won't understand it. There's no, she's modelling to you through this relationship. She's showing you what to do. I bet you sit still in church as well, don't you? Yeah? Sometimes, yeah. Thanks, Pastor. Relationally, we communicate. And then as they grow up, um, you know, you, you, you give that which shapes the heart of the child in and through the relationship. One of the wisest things ever said to me, my old mentor, Richard Koken in London, a very fine preacher and a good pastor and a, a visionary church planter and leader. Uh, we were talking about his kids and, and he said, you know, you have to waste time with children. He had five kids, I think, five, yeah. Um, you can't, like, take them one at a time for 35 minutes to Starbucks. Right, this is your slot. Tell me your problems. Let's have bad time. You know, you have to just muck around with them and just kind of... And then you discover after two hours of doing jigsaw puzzles or playing tennis or, or just sitting watching some movie or just, just hanging out and making pancakes, whatever, they, they'll turn to you and ask you some deep question because the relationship is the thing that's building the child. Then, second, habits. Now, just parenthetically, you notice that these three perspectives are not entirely separate and distinct some of the things I've just said you might say well hold on that was a habit you talked about because we habitually make pancakes together on Saturday mornings yes so the perspectives on the process of upbringing are not um, separate they are perspectives on the same thing and sometimes they appear to overlap and that's fine it's just sometimes one or more of the perspectives will highlight aspects of what's going on in, with greater clarity. So 
Um, with your children, you provide a framework for life. Even if it's um, super chaotic, you know, we wake up when they wake up, they eat when they want to eat. I mean, that, that's still a framework. It's not a very smart framework. Much better is that you say, listen, in this house, we sleep at night and wake up during the day, and it's about time. You're three months old. You've got to figure this out. So I can still remember the time. Oh, goodness. We knew it was going to happen. We decided this is a routine we're going to put our kids on, and we tweaked it a little bit because you've got to be a bit flexible. But he was fed. He'd had his diaper changed. He didn't have a fever. Um, there were no nails or poisonous insects in his bed. And he was lying in his cot screaming. And Nicole was standing outside weeping because she wanted me to let her go in and pick him up. And I said, no. Remember, we said this was going to happen. We both knew the day would come when we had to inculcate the habit of you sleep when you're put down in your cot. And he cried about half an hour, and then that was it. You shape the children by the habits that you... It's not that you teach them to do it. You just, they just do it because you impose them. We sit down family meals. Um, we have a particular pattern of family worship, maybe. You have other uh, rituals of relationship, like maybe when you get out of the car, you open the door for your sister. I don't know. But all these things are structures. Please and thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. All these things are character-forming activities and the way that they shape your little hearts, children, is because you do them again and again and again and again. And it gets at your heart through your body. Because let me tell you, pardon me, I'm just going to try and make sure this doesn't slip off. Thank you. Um, a young man who has been taught by his father and shown by his father and required by his father always to say, yes, sir, or always to look a man in the eye when he's talking to him, or always to... Um, be polite, using whatever form of words it is to a young lady or a lady older than himself, is a different kind of young man. And, it, and the reason is because the, the rituals of life have penetrated to the heart. Yeah? It's like what Proverbs says about the rod, withholding the rod from a child will ruin the child. And whereas the, the, ro the folly is bound up in the heart of a child, what do you need to do to drive it far from him? The rod. The rod is not applied to the heart. The rod is applied to the backside. It's a bodily infliction of discomfort. And it changes the heart because the heart and the body are connected. So, then third. Finally, when the kid's old enough to read and understand stuff because you've been talking to them the whole time, you get to the teaching stage. Um, you will correct their grammar. You might, if you're homeschooling them, you'll teach them a whole bunch of things. There'll be a bunch of formal education, but there'll be formal instruction, explaining things, and you're getting at the cognitive element, the normative aspect of child-rearing. And what's absolutely fascinating to me is that in the actual raising of a child, the order is pretty much indisputably um, relational, then bodily, habitual, then teaching. It's existential, situational, normative. And when we approach the task of growing in maturity, we just start here. Like, well, that's really thick, isn't it? 
because we missed out the first two stages. What if the problem is basically that our lack of maturity in Christ is a failure to grow up? What if basically you're just an overgrown teenager? What if, look, it would be perfectly normal for a seven-year-old or a 13-year-old to have, what are the figures I gave, 12 jobs in five years or something because he couldn't hold one job down for more than six months. But it, it ought not to be the case for a man in his 30s or 40s. What if the problems of sin and Christian immaturity are actually a kind of equivalent of the teenage boy who's six foot two and has got size five feet? Or the other way around is more embarrassing, isn't it? When you've got like massive feet and you're still only this tall and you're constantly tripping over them the whole time. That happened to me. Very embarrassing. We grow up misshapen. Some aspects of our lives get stuck in the past. We have failed to grow up fully through the divinely ordained process of childhood. Now, this is not to blame your parents. Some of you may have had uh, absent parents or there may have been some regrettable aspects of the relationship with the parents. But even if you had great parents, if you had the perfect, wonderful parents, if you're not perfect now, I submit to you that what's actually happened is you haven't fully grown up through the process of childhood. So what if the solution is to go back and relive or reinstantiate those aspects that we've missed out. It might help to do some teaching. I think it would. I teach more or less half my time in one form or another. I think teaching is good. But what if what we really want to do is say, you know, there are some uh, habits I've not fully formed. I've got some bad habits because when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is um, you know, yawn, stretch, groan, roll over, grope blindly for the mobile phone, unplug the USB cable, turn it on with my thumbprint, and then I suddenly wonder why it's 10.30 in the morning and I'm still lying in bed on Saturday. I've learned some bad habits. What if I've got some, there were some things missing in the relationships I had so that what I ought to do is to go back and replay some relationship. Maybe your relationship with your dad wasn't all it could have been. I mean, and that's no criticism of your dad, not really any criticism of you. It's just life is like that. Uh, I, I take it probably if you had good parents, they apologized to you for their failings. Well, they were telling the truth. Um, what if we need not just teaching, in other words, but also a re- instantiation of good habits and some better relationships. Some relationships in and through which we can have modelled to us some of the virtues that are um, missing in us. Um, tomorrow I want to talk a little bit practically about that, about, bo about both those aspects. Um, right now, I want to just read a quotation um, which will introduce one author that I, another author I want to share with you tomorrow, Jamie Smith. Uh, some of you will have come across Jamie Smith. I know, Pastor um, Hale, you have. 
Um, he's written a ton of really interesting stuff about this kind of subject and related topics. Um, in, in the last year or two, he, um, he's disappointed us perhaps with one or two of the things he said publicly in connection with one or two things, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. His um, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, uh, Awaiting the King trilogy is magnificent, though a bit complex and overweight. Um, he's got a great smaller book called you are, you are What You Love. Just think. You, we are, uh, you are what you love. He's getting at the existential path to the heart in that book. And I'm going to share some of that with you tomorrow. For now, I just want to read a quotation that he quotes from another uh, philosopher, Mark Johnson. And I was reading through these books. I was we were on vacation uh, uh, just for a couple of days, a few months back. And I was thinking about these talks because you said you'd been reading Jamie Smith. I thought I should go and read Jamie Smith again. So I did. And I was just thrilled to come across this quote. I'll read it to you. Adults are big babies. Because, and this is quoting Mark Johnson, the many bodily ways by which infants and children find and make meaning are not transcended and left behind when children eventually grow into adulthood. On the contrary, these very same sources of meaning are carried forward into and thus underlie and make possible our mature acts of understanding, conceptualization, and reasoning. Well, the last part of that is somewhat complex, but basically it means the bodily ways in which infants learn about the world still exist in adulthood. Kids learn by routine. You learn your dad loves you because when, when he comes home at night and you run to the door and daddy, and he picks you up and gives you a big hug or you have a particular kind of, do you do like a particular way of greeting your dad? My son and I, um, Ben, we, he's the only person with just one or two exceptions that I ever greet with a fist bump. It's like a Ben and dad thing. That's a, it's my attempt at one small bodily way of communicating to my son that he's special. I don't fist bump with all the other teenage lads at church. Just Ben. Because adults are big babies and the many bodily ways by which infants and children find and make meaning are not left behind when they grow into adulthood. So what I want to do tomorrow, I will pick up the threads from here. Are you guys going to be here tomorrow? Or is it just going to be me? All right, okay. One or two of you are nodding. So what we'll do, I want to jump straight into some of these practical things. So what would we have to do to create really good habits now as adults? Because we haven't got mum and dad around anymore to, to help us out. Maybe some of you have. I don't, you know, one of you at least has. But as an adult, what can I do? And then some of these relational things, and there's some significance there. Then we're going to talk about uh, the bogeyman in the room. Whenever we talk about our hearts being led astray from the Lord, we have to talk about social media. We have to talk about that. We'll talk about smartphones. We'll talk about a couple of other strains of philosophical thought in recent years, Jamie Smith being one, and then um, René Girard and people whom he's influenced, and also um, uh, Edwin Friedman, both of whom are, are talking about the, the relational aspect of being influenced and influencing others and being shaped. So that's all in store tomorrow. Um, I hope you'll come back for it. I'm going to pause now. It's just after nine. Um,
we can take a bit of time for questions, Q&A, if, you want, if you, there's any questions about that. We're due to finish at what time? Have I overrun? No, no, I've got 9.15. Do, do you want to take five now, or should we just stop at this point? I think what we'll do is uh, we will have a table where you can write down right. uh, questions, and we'll put those in a basket. The table's right over there. I'll move it out after we're done. Please feel free to write down your questions, and we'll kind of compile them. Very good, we'll very good. have a, you know, a concentrated Q&A time. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that then. Yeah. All right. So, Fabulous. Don't write them in your phone. Write them on the piece of paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so it just remains then for me to say um, thank you again for coming out. Thank you for your attentiveness. And um, I've enjoyed talking to those uh, number of you who I have spoken to. I hope I get to speak to all the rest of you either in a few minutes or tomorrow. Uh, but thank you. God bless you. Thank you.